0: On episode 221 of the Tennis Files podcast, you'll learn how to analyze your game through video with coach David Ramos.
2: Welcome to the Tennis Files Podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mirban Iranshad.
0: Hey there, this is Mirban. Welcome to another episode of the podcast, and I'm very pleased to have you listen in on today's interview with Coach David Ramos. Dave is currently the Director of Coaching, Education, and Performance Analytics, at the USTA National Campus and he works with the top players in the United States and of course in the world because we have so many great professionals from the United States who are training at the USTA National Campus and he is a USPTA slash PTR P1 professional with well over 20 years of diverse professional experience. He is a Dartfish certified technician and performance analyst and. He works very closely with USCA's coaches and players to provide training and video analysis for technique and tactics. And so it was a pleasure to have him on to speak with him about how we can improve our game through video analysis. We also talk about many of the different strategies and tactics and patterns that he has picked up through just reviewing countless thousands of hours of footage from professional matches. And we also get into some really cool uh, specific instances of when he has helped his players and what strategies they've used against opponents to prevail. And so I think I really enjoy this one. And we also get into different apps and ways that you can use video and utilize it to improve your game. So Really hope you enjoy it, but first off, my pun of the day. And here it is: My opponent sarcastically said that I had great ground strokes, and I thanked him for his backhanded compliment. I hope you like that one. Uh, you know, trying my best out here, so it can be a tough crowd, but I don't know if you like it or not, so I uh, hope you do. <laughs> All right, so with that, let us go into my interview with David Ramos. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Tennis Falls podcast. And it's really an honor and a pleasure to have on David Ramos on the podcast. I've actually had him on my summit previously. And it's really great to talk to somebody who is really in the trenches with regards to training the best players uh, in the world, in the United States. So, uh, Dave, thanks so much for coming on. Really appreciate your time.
2: My pleasure to be here. Yeah, we're uh, just finishing up on some of the most important work we do during the year, of course, the U.S. Open and uh, incredibly busy at this time of the year. We have Indian Wells going on. uh, We have Fed Cup and Davis Cup preparation. We have preseason preparation, et cetera. But uh, there really isn't uh, a busy part or an unbusy part of the year. So I decided that would be a great time to get on and, and talk with you about what we did at the Open.
0: Yeah, for sure, and it was really neat because I uh, I visited Orlando earlier in the summer, and then I, I had a great chance to you know to meet with Satoshi and then say hi to you. And I was actually you know seeing what you were doing with respect to helping the players at the I think it was the French Open at the time. So that was really neat for me. But Dave, I just want to get the audience a sense of your background. It's always interesting to see uh, how people got into tennis. So how did you get uh, introduced to the sport?
2: Sure. Um, I, I always tell a little bit of a joke. I was a basketball player my whole life, and I have the, uh, the anti-Michael Jordan story. Instead of, you know, he, he got cut in 10th grade and decided he wanted to be a great basketball player. I got t- cut in 10th grade when I moved to Sachem High School. It was one of the largest school districts in the United States. I had 1,600 people in my graduating class, 3,000 people in 11th and 12th grade. And another three thousand in ninth and tenth. And I was a, a basketball player. played power forward. I moved to a school in tenth grade. They said, "Yeah, you have to try out for point guard," and I got caught. So I uh, kept playing basketball with my with my father and lots of professional players and college players he would play with. But uh, didn't start playing tennis competitively until I was sixteen and played uh, number one doubles on that Sachem team uh, right away and. Uh, really love the sport. Maybe that's part of the reason I've been able to have the, the passion you know, continue over the years was the fact that I started playing really late, played some tournaments a little bit in high school, played a little bit in junior college. And um, around the time that I was going to school in New York City, I was 22 years old at that point and doing some, some assistant coaching at FIT and made the decision that I wanted to make tennis a career. Um, so pretty late start.
0: Yeah, it is interesting to see. uh, You know, I know some adults who are playing in USA leagues, and they get started, you know, really late, uh, well past school, but they're just so gung ho about the sport. But it's interesting. You know, you started late. I think you mentioned 16, and you were still able to uh, get on the team and play, which is uh, pretty hard. You know, I would think. Uh, How were you able to uh, accelerate your development and be able to actually play on a team despite starting in high school?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know. So if I say 16 17 I was introduced to the game and I loved the serve and volley and at that time serving and volleying was actually a way we're talking about 86 87 years <clears throat> you know you could you could play from the net and attack and so I started off playing doubles really enjoyed it I probably put you know I didn't wind up playing NCAA tennis at Ferris State University until I was 25 so that's the answer essentially is like you know you get your 7 years or your 10,000 hours somewhere Generally, people get that between, you know, usually they start playing like five or six years old. And by the time they're 17, 18, they're at a level where they're ready to play in, in college. But uh, yeah, all my time of development essentially came at Ferris State University. I left uh, illustration school in, in my early 20s and went up to Ferris State. And the first three years uh, or the first two years, I wasn't good enough to play on the team. In 95, uh, I was I was able to make the team and uh, primarily as a doubles player, a better practice player, and, and then played one more year in 98 as well. So if it wasn't for, um, you know, being in a university where we had unlimited time to be able to be on court and lots of players at the time, there was 92 po- folks in the PTM program. So tons of like four or 5 50 players, several club teams that we could travel, and a couple of tournament teams where we'd go and, and play tournaments together and share the cost of hotels. So, I got my experience in that in that college uh time.
0: that's fantastic, and you mentioned the ten thousand hour rule, and sometimes that can you know be helped by other experiences so I'm curious you know you you said that you played obviously a lot of basketball until about the tenth grade. So do you feel like that playing basketball helped your athleticism, which then transferred into tennis?
2: for sure, no question about it, you know, and I played a lot of sports growing up, and it's hard for me to relate to kids these days. You know, as I was, I think over the bike, I was totally into BMX, totally the to, to skateboard, um, and and ride bicycles all the time. Played hockey, uh, deck hockey in particular. Um, used to fool around and play lacrosse. Played football from the time I was seven till I was twelve in like pop Warner leagues, full contact football, uh, until I got hurt. Uh, Played basketball, sort of religiously, but not a whole lot of organized basketball. Uh, But in in my family, my my dad was a great basketball player. Um, So lots of sports. Played baseball for a little bit. Tried out soccer, just a a, a you know a tiny bit. So certainly, I think if you have a decent athletic base and you become an attacking tennis player, in particular, that a lot of that, you know, was was easier for me to learn. Certainly, I decent hands i would never say i was had great ground strokes even now i think i became a much better uh, tennis player when i became a coach just because i had to be able to stay at the baseline and be consistent and put the ball in the strike zone etc you know during college it was all about playing on the fast course at ferris state serving and volleying getting to the net and in doubles you're really trying to be as aggressive as possible so you know the athleticism sets the, the base for that for sure
0: yeah, definitely. And and Dave, you know, you're surrounded with, uh, you know, all the best players in, in the United States and obviously, you know, the world and, and the top ranked players. So do you know if there's a lot of um cross training going around with uh with those players when they train?
2: Gosh, it's a good question. I mean, I can tell you what I see here is, you know, people use uh, other sports to do their warm ups. Maybe they play a little bit of soccer or they do a little uh, mixed training, you know. I hear from the coaches that are working consistently with players, let's say like the 11 to 14 range that a lot of them need to develop their overall athleticism and they, and they, you know, on the girl's side, maybe some of them aren't great at throwing. So they'll spend some time here in the camps, working on throwing football uh, and doing some other all around athletic development. But I can't say I have firsthand knowledge of, you know, top players right now. I mean, the, the phone, the ones that we would have had the most exposure to, let's say uh Riley Opelka and and uh Tommy Paul, Taylor Fritz, uh Francis Tiafo, those guys play for for fun in other sports and but uh to say that they you know they still train at this point playing those other sports would be uh, a stretch. I'm not not quite sure about that, but you know, I think they they're all they're all pretty good athletes, that's for sure. You know, Riley jokes around that he should have been a a basketball player because you know, the eighth guy in the, guy in the Chicago uh, makes what the, you know, the eighth guy in the world makes in, in tennis. <laughs> but uh, I, I mean, I think it's a great philosophy, even when you're in a, on a professional route, you're 17, 18 years old to, to kind of continue to play sports. So you develop a more well-rounded base, provided that you don't get hurt. And that's really the key.
0: Yeah, 100% agreed there, Dave. So as I mentioned, you know, when I visited in the summer, it was really fascinating to see you pouring over video. Uh, I don't know this, if we could say this, but I think it was might have been Tech and it may have been for uh, Sophia Kennan's match uh, that you were, you know, uh, compiling some information. And it was really cool, the stuff you are putting together. So can you give us more of an insight into your role, which I think, and forgive me if I'm wrong, it's a, a senior... Uh, Manager
2: of Coaching Education and Performance is that correct? I've since been promoted, um, and, and you know, I, I went. I took a step forward to become a director of the the organization. We lost some people in our reorganization mm. in 2020, so um, my formal title is the Director of Coaching Education and Performance Analytics, and it's really a, a dual role. Um, the Coaching Education part, I was I was a part of the delivery of the high performance coaching program uh with several other folks in in player development still continue to try to figure out how that's going to fit into the new landscape with certification now being a whole whole different process and some of the things that we used to deliver when the high performance coaching program are actually in level two certification so we're kind of refiguring out what the high performance coaching program will look like in that role i also help deliver internal coaching education so work with uh, the rest of our performance team, which is Larry Lauer and Satoshi Ochi and, uh, you know, uh, Kent Kinnear, Kathy Rinaldi and uh, Ola Malmquist to determine the areas of focus for our national staff, you know, and and uh, figure out what it is that we want to do internally so that we're using the best practices with the players that we work with directly. And then we can also pass on some of those lessons to the folks uh, externally that come through for, for education. So coaching education is a big part of the role, working with USTAU and determining what courses and content should be in certification. And then ultimately figuring out where the c- high performance coaching program comes back into the picture. And then the analytics department is a, a role separate from all its own. And that's typically the one that folks want to hear about. Myself, Jeff Russell, Adam Snook and Catherine Gonzalez are a four part team for that uh, analytics approach. And really uh, none of us spend hundred percent of our time in there. Obviously I have coaching education responsibilities um, myself and, and Jeff and Catherine and Adam also are part of this performance team approach with the players that we work with within here. So that's a major responsibility to make sure that we're doing all the things like tracking their development across time by, having tagged matches and and seeing if they're sort of like beating the, the goals that we have set for them in, in key areas of their performance. Um, and then we do all the scouting and also individual projects for development for players that have requests. So on that given day, you probably saw me providing scouting information to uh, American players for the French Open. We, you know, we, we, we kind of have a a big scope of what we do in terms of the analytics. The first, first and foremost, we're supposed to be there to provide developmental information for our own players, the internal ones, or for players that are kind of in our pathway. Maybe they stop through. We provide technique analysis for those players. So if they're working on a serve return, et cetera, we'll take film of it. That's why we also film at the U S open. So we sort of have uh, clips where we can do comparisons and, and we can use those clips from the top players to, Look at the common fundamentals across the serve, return, forehand, and backhand to teach players in the pathway of exactly what we're looking for. So we have, you know, developmental projects for tactics. We have technique analysis, um, and then then we would definitely get into using the information for scouting purposes as well. So generally, our promise, and, and you know, we we kind of have to focus in on a smaller group of folks for an interactive or or I would say proactive approach. So for uh, essentially everyone who is in the main drawn qualities of the SLAMs and the Masters uh, 1000s or WTA Premier events, those are the events that we really focus on. So obviously you have Australian, uh, the four SLAMs, then you have events like Indian Wells that's going on right now, like Miami, uh, Cincinnati, et cetera where we send information to all the players in the qualities as well as the main draw throughout the tournament, send them examples of um, scouting reports made from the data that we gather from our match tagging. Uh, we also purchase Hawkeye data on behalf of American players to be able to provide them information on themselves as well as their opponents. So all of those things together sort of comprise the, the analytics effort.
0: Yeah, super neat, and I, I would like to also ask you about your um, uh, coaching education initiatives. But uh, you know, you are correct in saying, especially for this particular audience, they definitely want to know about you know the ins and outs of the analytics, or at least as much as we can talk about. So, sure, c- curious to ask you. Um, you know, you've you poured over so much data uh, and statistics. Are there any commonalities of let's 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 go into maybe the um, strategy and tactics like? Ones that you just see that are very common that you over and over that you analyze that maybe even like amateurs can actually apply these basics to our game and actually improve our results.
2: You know, one of the things that we try to do with the information that we get from the the matches that we tag, uh, in particular, we try to focus on the quarterfinals on from the slams, and we bring those matches together. And then we we call uh, we or we create what we call the parameters. You know, so we have parameters for our teaching and coaching philosophy. So when we talk about the parameters for a volley, you know we say a grip that's close to continental. It doesn't mean it had to be exactly continental. And when we talked about when we talk about the parameters for the Grand Slams, we might talk about, well, what's a, a range of first serve percentage that's acceptable for the folks that got to the quarterfinals through the finals? Obviously, you know, a range of certain percentages, you might have 10% variation based on that player's game style and how that particular stat relates to the way they play. So even though you can get a lot of information in terms of what comes from the top players and in general, you just get a, uh, you know, a, a sense of what's normal for the folks that perform at that level. And how how those things can apply to students at all levels is is really basic. Certainly, the number one tactic in tennis is being consistent. You know, the best players put the the, the greatest number of first serve returns in play. They put the, be- the the most number of second serve returns in play with with when able to while they're able to gain some advantage. You know, generally they'll have close number of winners to errors to where they balance things out. You know, those are, those are things that you can teach to your players, you know, the, the, the importance of consistency, consistency, the importance of depth, developing points, you know, with some margin away from the sidelines, um, not making as many unforced errors in the net, you know, basic things that hold true. Even when you look at the top of the game, those, those things are still all uh, important and, and really important to teach the, the fundamentals of developing points well. I mean, I think that's sort of where the top players separate themselves from folks who are, you know, let's say outside of the top 20, is they, they do a better job of developing points with consistent high percentage tennis than, than the rest of the field do.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. what's an example of that actually of of developing points uh you know more consistent uh basis that are that win them you know matches
2: sure i mean certainly the 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 one that we talk to players about a lot is the first serves uh returns in play that there's so many players that actually touch so you know what an example of of ridiculous first serve returns in play it might be someone who's in the low 90s or 90 90% percent of the balls they touch they're going to put them back in play they might miss like less than 10 percent of the first serve returns Is it would be an, an example of a really high level of performance and that might be medvedev and djokovic where every time they touch the ball somehow they find a way to put it back in the court and that's that starts to to weigh on you more and more and you see it from those guys where they're at the complete end of their Reach as uh, as they're returning, and they just barely touch the ball, and somehow it makes it all the way back in the middle of the court, and just sits on the baseline. And the first time, okay, that's not that that tough to deal with, but like the fifteenth or the twentieth time that happens, now you have a ball landing on the baseline with no pace, and you know, okay, this person's going to make me play for for every single point. You know, so that has a that has a, a weight, and we're, we're trying to teach players that if you touch the ball on the first serve, even if you're at the end of your reach, you should be able to put the ball in play nine times out of 10 or eight times out of 10. You're not really taking a swing in a first serve return when you're, when you're, you know, on a deep stretch. Um, So that's definitely an example of we've, we've had players in the lab the last couple of weeks where we're looking at, you know, number of returns in play on the first serve and whether or not those balls go in the court. And and, um, it's, I think they kind of think, well, it's a first serve. It doesn't matter if I miss a few here and there. And the best players are definitely doing a better job of that.
0: Thanks for that, Dave. So, I mean, do you think that because I think somebody listening, there's a chance that maybe they're going to go out on the court and say, all right, I'm going to try to get every return in. And then they might end up, you know, just going and chipping, you know, every return uh, in the court and everything do you think that would be beneficial or do you think there should be some like middle ground between, you know, going for certain returns and chipping others in?
2: Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> certainly being able to get the ball in is important. Uh, as when you, when you, when you're receiving first serve, you're trying to neutralize, right? You're trying to take away your opponent's advantage. And if you chip the ball in and it sits up and they have an easy put away, uh, then it doesn't really do any good for you. So at least trying to get the ball past the, the service line, to give yourself enough time to recover and get into a good court position to maybe defend on the second shot is is a key and if, and you, you see the massive trend of some of the the men's players females really haven't seen anybody do it quite yet but what what is it that they're doing that we haven't seen the depths of before? what do you think
0: oh what is it that uh, men returning.
2: what are we what is what oh, is uh, happening on the side with the men's? Return?
0: So I think uh, hard and deep uh, in the middle. Is that what's happening more?
2: Yeah, I mean, just the fact that they're returning from deeper court positions than we've ever seen before. Medvedev returns from further Mm. back than Nadal does. And when they played each other in the final, if you remember, how often both of them were serving and volleying because the guys are standing 25, 29. I mean, there's probably, you know, between Wawrinka and Medvedev, Nadal, um, gosh, Potro was also capable of doing that team does it to some extent, but only in varying circumstances, they're standing so far back that basically they're saying, go ahead and try to get the ball past me. It's, it's going to be impossible because I have so much time to react, but then they're able to produce good quality returns that go past the service line, past three quarters court and still create depth with, with that sort of, um, court position, which is very difficult to do. So yeah, if you if you're going to practice, you want to be able to get the the first returns in play. But if you can get them past three quarters court, that's going to give you a much better chance to be able to get back to neutral and to and to you know give you some time to recover to a neutral court position.
0: Another great point, Dave. So I'm curious. I mean, why aren't these players getting um, you know a stuff slice serves by standing so far back? Is this their anticipation is so good?
2: I mean, I think yeah they certainly you know there's there's first of all it's it's harder than it, it's harder than it seems because as soon as this as the person moves back and you start trying it's almost like when you if you're playing a lefty on the ad side one of your strategies is always to take a step into the doubles alley so you kind of take away the natural angle of the way the ball bends and lefties do the same thing when they play righties in the deuce court they move over a step or two and put at least one foot in the double's alley so that they take away the 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 bending angle but once once somebody moves back the tendency is to try just a little too hard to find those angles and then uh, no. you know you're in you can be in trouble and certainly these these players are able to read the service motions and still get the balls back and play but you you are seeing a, a renaissance of the serve and volley as a result of players standing back and i mean djokovic came in a ton against medvedev He was, it didn't look like he had the energy to actually be able to execute quite as well as he wanted to. And that's not his game plan, A, to be serving and volleying more than 20 times in a match. But uh, that's, that's probably one of the most, uh, the best ways to combat that really deep court position is attack a little bit and be unpredictable as the server
0: Love that. So, Dave, I thought it would be pretty interesting if we could maybe ask you for an instance or two of when you like what strategies you prepared uh, or scouting report that you gave to a particular player, obviously, to play against an opponent. Um, But, you know, I don't know if you can actually mention the players. If you can't, you can just keep it like general. So it's up to you.
2: If, if we were talking more around development and things a player was working on, that would be a little bit more sensitive. But in the example of a, of a, scouting instance, I have a, a favorite one that I think, you know, led to probably one of the greatest surprises and, and most encouraging wins of a grand slam. And, uh, that was when semifinal, we have, um, Sophia Cannon has to play against Ash Barty and, um. You know, I, I know the folks from Tennis Australia well, and they have a, a person who's in the same position, uh, Darren from Tennis Australia. I, I know that also their tagging is done at a sh- uh, shot level. So the way you tag matches is you watch the point. Generally, the level we tag at is, is a point level. So we, within each point, we're going to say who serves, where the serve lands, who returns, where the return goes, who hits the first shot after the the serve, Uh, The serve plus one, the the return plus one. So those first four shots are all tagged in detail. And then if it's a twenty-shot rally, we'd say who ends the point, the direction that they hit the shot, you know, if the where they on the where their court position was, etc. So you get the first four, and you get the last shot, and then if anybody came to the net in the middle, you get that as well. So that's point level tagging. Well, Tennis Australia tags at shot level. That means every shot in the rally. They're looking at the direction of the shot and the court position and the resulting information. So they have a lot more to look at. And I I knew going into that match because we've been working with Kennan on trying to be able to hit her forehand down the line a little bit more, the developmental tool, that they would have the information that she was probably hitting more than 95% of her forehands cross court and that they would bank on her being that same player and, and executing a strategy expecting that she would be hitting 90 plus percent of her forehands cross court so you know we we showed examples of this is how you've been able to in some matches hit the ball down the line look at the margin that you create against other players and what happens when you do this you know this is a, this is going to be a massive key to the match that you're able to hit your forehand down the line and make her play her backhand from the ad side we gave some examples of her doing that to kind of say like, look, you can do this. This is what it looks like. Try to do this early in the match. And it was definitely one of the things where you could see that I don't know, there's chatter between Ash Barty and her box looking over thinking what's going on right now. Like we had a game plan. My <laughs> game plan was to get locked. My forehand, which is her forehand cross court is considerably better than Kennen's forehand cross court. It's one of her best shots. And she's really good at opening up the court with it and pulling you out of position and then being able to to play the ball into the outside. And, uh, you know, so- Sonia was able to do it under pressure. She was able to do it early in the match. And I think it it kind of threw the whole uh, game plan for for Tennis Australia and, and Barty out of the window. Um, and, it, and and that that's what it comes down to. It's Between players, you know, I mean, when they say Novak Djokovic wins 55% of the points that he plays during the course of a year. So a slight adjustment like that, that kind of changes somebody's formula of how they're going to play a match in a big pressure match is enough to, to shift the tide.
0: Yeah, that's a fantastic one and uh, I'm sure very unnerving like you said for uh, Barney and her camp. I, I it seems like a chess match. Has, has there been any instances where the reverse happened, you know, where you guys thought you had a, a solid plan, you know, obviously you put in a lot of time and effort like you always do, um but then, you know, something happened that was surprising or maybe, you know, you thought there was a weakness but then it turned out that that person was just on fire with that particular strategy or shot.
2: Yeah, I mean, and again, I, I think I think back to just critical matches that um, we didn't wind up losing them, but you know, in a, in the, the twenty seventeen Fed Cup final with Coco Vandeweghe playing against um, Sabalenka, we had quite a bit yeah. of information on her. Generally, when we do scouting for big matches like that, we'll try to you know have at least ten matches of information on the on the opponent that we're going to play against, mm. and we were expecting very specific types of serving under pressure, et cetera. And she just came out and played unbelievable. Like, I, I don't think, I don't think she could have served with better, uh, variety. And, and, and she, she still did some of the things that she typically we knew she was going to do, but it was almost like there was no way we could have ex- expected that level of performance. But, um, you know, that's, that's what makes fed cop Davis cop a little bit different. That people can come out you know in the slams i think that people are playing for themselves and maybe the pressure is not the same but when you're talking about a fed cup final in 2017 in belarus the place was i've never been in a tennis atmosphere like that before in my entire life it was deafening it was hostile people didn't want us to feel like comfortable there they wanted to feel like we're going to beat you and uh, you know, little things went on from the type of food that we were given. Like, I mean, it, I've never, I've never been in an atmosphere that said like, you're not, we're not here to be friends with you. We're here to beat you. And um, she came out and played it particularly well. Uh, but Coco Vandeway was just, she was just a better player. I mean, it, it, the information was helpful and it gives you a, a framework of what to expect. But sometimes people would come out and just play out of their mind and, and you say too good. But I don't, I don't honestly remember. And I think we probably, you know, we all have a the ability to forget where we said, okay, this certain sort of thing is going to happen and somebody comes out and they're completely different. It's, it's, um, you know, I think you might see a little difference here and there, and certainly the higher the level of the player, the more opportunity there is for something like that to happen. Like, you know, if you're talking about the top, Ten players in the world on the men's and women's side, they probably have a game plan A, B, and C, and they can still beat you with B and C, even on their 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 lower level days. So, but I can't think of an example where I was like, "Gosh, we were so surprised! Like that was not exactly what we're expecting." Generally, people are pretty close to who they need to be under pressure. So.
0: Dave, in, in terms of um, you know this the uh tools that you use, like I, I imagine that most of it is proprietary. Like, is there anything that you're using in regards to video analysis that uh, that amateur players, USCA league players, can actually use as well?
2: Sure, absolutely. We um, <clears throat> you know, and and the two areas that I we talk about performance analytics are technical and tactical in general. You know, in the technical area, we use some of the same tools that everybody uses, you know, essentially just Coach's Eye, which just stopped being supported. Mm. So if you have it on your phone or your Mm. iPad, don't delete it because it's going to be gone forever. Uh, Coach's Mm. Eye is one of the best uh, video analysis resources. The filming is um, at a high frame rate. It films relatively well indoors where things aren't all blurry you have all the great drawing tools and zoom features and you can do a voiceover. Um, so even though we're, we're we have a, a master service agreement with Dartfish, some of our coaches still use Coach's Eye. it's their go-to app. It's very easy back in the day. It used to allow you to, to download reference clips from um, YouTube, which was a huge plus. Oh. A lot of people yeah, anymore. Yeah. They got rid of that feature as well. So I put a, a little tutorial out you know, showing how to use web browsers. Uh, there, there's generally different types of video download uh, add-ons or accessories that you can get for Chrome or for Firefox that will allow you to go to, to you know, YouTube and find your favorite video of, of a player and download it. Then you just have to figure out how to clip that and then send it to your mobile device so that you can create your comparisons. And the key there is that you're dealing with the right frame rate. In some cases, they don't tell you exactly what those slow motion clips are, but um, you know, definitely Coach's Eye for technique analysis. You know, uh, Huddle Technique is free and it does a lot of what Coach's Eye does. Um, Dartfish, my Dartfish Express is I think seven bucks or eight bucks, and and it has some different prop- proprietary uh, ability to break clips into key positions. It doesn't have that whole voiceover effect, which I figure most coaches really want that. They want to be able to you know, use drawing tools, do side-by-side comparison and use their voices. So that stuff is all available to the general public. And um, the Dartfish comes in handy when you want to do like four-way comparisons or apply key positions automatically or do some more fancy sort of uh, analysis stuff. But uh, you know, I think virtually everybody can have access to those things. The two tools that I talked about at the USPTA convention for coaches to be jumping on right now, if you're into doing match analysis and you've, uh, you know, you really haven't gone full advantage of that, you have a couple models. You have the uh, do-it-yourself model with something like Pro Tennis Tracker, um, which is one of the apps that's out there. Use an iPad, you tap on it. It gives you really good graphics as to, you know, the shots your players are missing or making and winners, et cetera. If you go another, uh, spend another $35, that app is $35 for most coaches. That that might be a lot. Um, it's another $35 to get the PC version that goes on a PC computer. And that is uh, capable of generating a CSV file, which is the same sort of thing that we use within Dartfish. You, so even though you're clicking on the iPad and creating the graphics for you know what seems like limited use it's also behind the scenes generating a CSV and if you had a video analysis software like dartfish or something else that allows you to integrate a CSV you can export the CSV from that video um, from that program and you can lay it in uh, over the video and you have the tag match as well so it becomes a little bit complicated in terms of the number of softwares you need uh, and the cost it's probably like okay35 dollars for the the pro tracker software another 35 for the pc version that generates the csv and then that's where it gets expensive probably 500 dollars at a minimum up to about 800 for something for, for from dartfish in order to be able to lay over the, the data in csv but the the last product that i talked about was swing vision so everybody's yeah. aware at this point right swing vision is the He has agreements with the LTA, with Tennis Australia and the USTA, as well as the ITA. So it's like the official uh, line calling and tracking for the ITA, as well as those other two governing bodies. But we just recently, the USTA did a deal with with them to provide anybody who's done like coach youth tennis or um, has gone through the safe play training as a USTA coach gets access to a $40 per year uh, discount. Mm-hmm. And the cost typically is $149 for a year. And it gives you access to up to 60 hours of tagging per month, which is generally plenty. Um, if you wanted to go a level less yeah. than that, I think you could do about 10 hours per month for, for 70 bucks uh, for the year. And essentially all you have to need to, all you have to know how to do is hang your phone up on the back of the fence. If you can line up a line on your phone with the service line on the same side and provided like you have um, any sort of mount that hangs on the fence, you know you could use one of those inexpensive uh, mounts that clips directly to the fence or you can use one of the ones that goes on the top. You just have to line up your phone. It it can kind of walk you through how to do that. You hit record and then it's processing everything on the fly. So as play Mm. is, is happening, it's capturing the video It's tagging it, and uh, as soon as the match is done, you can basically go back and pull up all the points or all the shots. You're able to see where those shots are landing on the court and what the speeds are of all of them. And um, it doesn't give you the winners or errors unless you do one extra step. So if either one of the Mm. players has the Swing Vision app on their phone and they're willing to put in the end result of the point each time, then not only do you get all the points and all the shots but then you're able to select a filter like winners or errors as well which is which is pretty amazing um we've uh we've started talking with them around the concepts around remote coaching because obviously you know no matter how many students you have if you have a select few of them that are interested in using this app they they add you to the app as the coach. Every time they put the mat, every time they put the phone up and tag a match with it, you get an indication that a new match has been entered in for that player. You go in and without having to do any of the legwork, you have all of the you know the total number of shots hit, how many in, how many out, the placement of the serves. It's it's pretty remarkable how good the information right. is for what the cost is of that app and that the fact that it's able you're able to do it with a phone at this point.
0: That's really fantastic. I definitely heard of it, and I saw it actually featured in like uh, the 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 latest Apple. Apple uh, yeah, <laughs> a lot actually. I wonder how much they paid for that. But can you actually record your match like on a GoPro or a, or a DSLR or something, and then upload it, or is that not possible? You
2: can actually, and it's one of the best features. Ooh. So they get they you know and 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 they're getting better and better with this. So the way it works is for your one forty nine. You have I don't know if there's a limited number of licenses that you can log in with your Apple ID. Typically, they try to limit it to like two where you could have it on like mm. a phone and an iPad for that amount. But they also give you a Mac iOS. It's not an iOS app, but it's a Mac app. So if you have a Mac computer, you go to the Mac store, you download that app, and you have that app on your computer. And if you have footage from uh, you know, any sort of camera, you can upload it into that app. And then it will process it after the fact the same exact way it does it on the phone. You, you basically mm-hmm. upload the, the file. You, you um, have it process it. It'll, it'll ask you after it takes a look at the match to identify which person you are. So it'll show you like a bunch of different clips, like are you this person in white or are you the person in blue? And you just go through and you identify yourself. And then you put the score in and then from there it pretty much it'll tag the video it takes quite a bit of time that way um i think i did two sets and it took probably two hours to go through it and and break it up Mm. um but the accuracy was was fairly good and Mm. one of the nice things is after the fact if you're in the app if you if you need to add or edit a shot like no that shot actually was out or in that you can do that so i mean the they they're they're predicting by the end of the year that not only is it going to tag it into points and shots, but it will start being able to differentiate the difference between winners and errors uh you know so totally like i said if you right now if you want that ability you have to tag it using the watch app to put, input the final out uh, outcome of the point, but they're thinking that they're going to be at a level where it will be able to do that just with video, which is. Pretty incredible. That's
0: really fantastic. I also think that Swing Vision is going to be very happy with you, uh, Dave. For you know this well, mean, out. I, I think it's inc- incredible. That's yeah, there's, there's a
2: reason. There's a reason why they have uh, you know deals with three of the governing yeah. bodies and the governing body of collegiate tennis is because it's a really good product. Yeah. Obviously, um, you know James Blake and Andy Roddick were involved mm-hmm. right from the beginning because they saw the potential. Um, and it's really going to become, you know, one of the things that is a limitation right now, or the, the two things that are limitations are the recording frames per second, you know, and, mm-hmm. and the resolution of the video. So you can just imagine if the accuracy of the line calling depends on higher resolution, more frames, uh, that basically is being taken care of when you think about the a modern iPhone right now has insane has nearly 4K uh, resolution. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have 120 frames, which the higher the frame rate gets, that's the other variable. And then the last piece is the, is the chip within the phone. Those things are all getting better and better. Um, and the coolest part is they're going to add other features like streaming. So with 5G coming in, the speed Great. of being able to transfer uh, to other folks, be able to put your phone up, have it do the line calling, and then also stream it to your parents so they can watch your your match at home. You know, you're, you're talking about a pretty amazing feature set. Um, so the big companies like uh, a Hawkeye or you know a PlaySite should be paying attention as to what's going on in that space because it's moving very quickly.
0: Definitely, Dave. Definitely. Uh, I know we only have a few more minutes. Uh, so, so, quick question for you: any any uh, quick tips for players for for videotaping themselves. A lot of them are you know haven't ever done it before. So any tips on that?
2: Yeah, I mean, in the past, I would have always said you know don't use your phone or don't use your your iPad just because of the difficulty of getting the files off of those things. And now it's almost just the opposite. Yeah. Now now with the the new apps, you know, by the way, you can test out Swing Vision for free. You can you can do I think a couple of hours per month that for that doesn't cost you anything so there's really no barrier to giving it a shot um so you know now and and back in the day it was kind of like well why would i bother buying a camera and you know why would i invest in and, and it wasn't cheap because you always had to get a camera you have to get a you had to get a larger life battery you had to get a wide angle lens if you really wanted to capture matches and you needed a mount so you know, low end, you might've been talking five or $600 between the mount and the wide angle lens and the extra length battery, et cetera. Um, now, you know, phones, some of them have wide enough angle lenses that you don't need the wide angle lens. You, the only thing you, you might need is a decent phone mount and then additional battery charger. So that keeps the phone, you know, with enough juice over the course of the, of the, uh, the match that you're recording. So, you know, now I, I, I'm, I'm thinking that phones and iPads and, and then, then there's the other, the other part of it is that most people have access to something like a Dropbox or a Google Drive to where they can transfer mm-hmm. the file from their iPad or iPhone to one of those services and then get the video from their computer. So those things were all more difficult to do in the past. And that's why in some cases people had cameras. Um, you know, now the only time, the only reason I would see to have a camera is if you're going to do a lot of zooming when you film technique and you you know you want to re retain the quality of the footage if you're thinking about doing drill videos and you want to wear a microphone and have higher quality audio that might be yeah. another reason you might use a a camera but in general um all that stuff is available for for a phone and tablet so there's really no reason not to start there because most people have a decent quality phone and tablet and and uh there's even software available to do match tagging that comes right on the iPad and it's a lot lower cost than it is to use mm-hmm. a, something like a Dartfish or, or one of the other products that, that go on a computer. So that's to me where you would start, you know, with a tablet, with a phone, with the mounts for them, getting them up in a decent level. I mentioned to you is a little, little, little plug for the QM1 is a, or $70 or $80 and that has a phone uh, attachment on it. Or even for you know twenty or thirty dollars, they make mounts that go right on the back of the fence.
0: Yeah, thanks a lot for that, Dave. And yeah, definitely don't let you know equipment be a huge barrier. You know, you don't need a fancy camera; just just use your phone. So uh, I do want to let you kind of educate us about just overall, you know, the success of of uh, the U.S. players this year and and how that's all been for uh, for the year for you as kind of a recap. Even though we do yeah. have Indian Wells coming up, but just how it's been.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's been an unbelievable uh, year in the last couple of years, actually. You know, the, the women's side has always been doing well, but uh, the men's side is, you know, starting to have, in fact, now Riley Opelka is the number one uh, American. And some of these guys that that kind of fill that gap where we're talking about, you know, TFO, Riley Opelka, Jensen Brooksby, uh, Sebastian Corda. Mm-hmm some of them are surprises right a lot of corda and and brooksby seem to kind of come out of nowhere and those people who who know them they've been coming for a while but they join the likes of tfo opelka uh fritz etc um and and uh it's just great to see that we're we're, we have some guys that are sustaining their careers and they're not just flashing in and out of the top hundred they're able to stay there and and join the likes of the the last round You know, the the Isner, Aquary, Johnson, et cetera, that that group. So, you know, it's exciting. It's an exciting time. We've done about as well in terms of supporting some of those players. And those are ones that we actually had hands on with. I couldn't be more proud of being a part of, you know, bringing those guys through the fold uh obviously we had on the women's side we had plenty of folks that have been doing well and we continue to have new players coming in i mentioned kennan winning a grand slam i don't think that any, that was on anyone's radar you have uh, other players like danielle collins coming through college and continuing to do well and jesse pagula had an amazing year this year mm-hmm. you know it's it's nice to see that when you have the, the top players who are entering their early into mid 30s and they're starting to. Work out of the games, the Serenas, Venuses uh, on the female side, and the Isners and Queries on the, on the men's side. That there's somebody there to, to at least step up and and be in in the field. Um, how many of them are going to go out and win multiple Grand Slams? Which is, of course, our goal. Is, is really remains to be seen. You know, some of the folks are saying, Ah, oh, Brooksby and and Core to have that on that side, and maybe Coco Golf could be the next female from the U.S. to win a Slam, um, but. Yeah, we've been pretty successful this year. We had, you know, one of the things we do at the Open is track the number of players we help each year. And, you know, from twenty seven, twenty fifteen 2015 was the first time we actually tried to support players uh, with information in the main draw. Before that, we really we just weren't focused in that way. We didn't have the resources. But this year we helped 81 unique players between qualities and main draw. We've tagged over 200 matches by taking the Hawkeye data that comes from the tournament. And running it through a portal that creates the CSV that I talked to uh, about, and um, about 150 different scouting instances between uh, qualities and main draw. So, you know, impacting that's just what we did at the Open. Overall, throughout the course of the year, we we generally impact over 100 U.S. players that are trying to make a living as uh, as tennis players. And, you know, the more folks we have doing well and making it into the, the second week, the the more there's a possibility that we'll get a top 10, we'll get a Grand Slam champion. But it's sort of like all the seas are rising together, you know, the, you can't tell me that Jensen Brooksby making the second week doesn't help Taylor Fritz be better. You know, the the that mm-hmm. um seeing Emma Kanu and Layla Fernandez doing well doesn't tell every girl in the main draw, like if you're top 50, you have a chance to to go all the way. So some incredible stories there and and really amazing US Open. Um myself, Jeff, and and Catherine and Adam spent a lot of uh 16 hour plus days there we we spent 18 days at the open we got there the you know a day day or two before qualies, and we and we left on uh wednesday of the second week and Mm. uh it's a lot of hard work but some incredible um you know passionate people to be able to to be able to be there and and you know jeff russell was there when uh, Francis finished his match at you know four o'clock in the morning. To take a picture in the hallway <laughs> with uh, Kathy Rinaldi. Those are the kinds of moments where you, you know, this was a kid. I have video of him when he's eight years old, and he came to his first camp at the USTA National Training Center down when it when it was down in Boca, and here he is, you know, having this critical win at, at the U.S. Open at four o'clock in the morning. So that's sort of what it's all about: supporting players and seeing them do well. You know, giving information to their teams and trying to help them make educated decisions about how they're going to train and how they're working on their games. It's, it's incredibly rewarding.
0: Yeah. You guys and and girls and everybody do a great job over there. Um, and, and yeah, it's just rewarding to see that it's all, you know, helping further the careers of such great people. So, uh, Dave, I'll just let you have the floor. Uh, if there's, you know, anything else that you want to let us know about or anywhere, you know, that we should go to, to follow, uh, your staff, or or USA National Campus, or anything like that that you want to mention?
2: Sure. I mean, one of the things that we do to try to uh, help the sections out, in particular, because we haven't had sectional level camps, is uh, to do some some education for the sections. We did this unbelievable, you know, eight um, eight videos that were pre recorded with our national staff in areas of performance like strength and conditioning um you know martin did a welcome telling the the folks in the section level camps and uh we also did some information on um playing a shot ahead what that concept means so there's a uh eight sectional pre-recorded videos that are done with our national staff that we have out on dartfish tv that i'd be happy to share with you and put those out as resources we've also been including them in like newsletters etc just letting people know that you know this is an example of information that we would generally devolve in um, or pass out through the camps. And then we're not able to do that anymore because we haven't had them. Hopefully post COVID world, we'll get back to having some of those camps. And we're going to do another session upcoming this fall for the sections specifically where we have like a thousand person webinar. We're going to talk a little bit about with some, some parents of, of, of a player and, you know, talk about their journey and, how they were able to kind of keep a balanced approach. Uh, So some information for parents and then some information for parents and coaches as well on uh, the concept of periodization and planning and how important Mm -hmm. it is to have a developmental plan and, and an annual plan that's written out so that you can, you know, look at your tournaments through the course of the year, make sure you have a good balance of wins and losses in terms of, you know, the level you're playing at and uh, really dedicate time to some de- dedicated training blocks. Some of the things that we really try to live here with the players that we work with directly, we're creating some content uh, around, you know, with videos and, and webinars and that stuff will be available, you know, depending on what section you're in, you'd, you'd be able to, to take a look for that. So we generally, uh, you know, for the webinars, of course, we have to limit it to the folks that are part of that section and that development um, initially, but we record all those things and then put them out uh, after the fact as resources for, for the whole country.
0: Brilliant. Thanks, Dave. That'll be very appreciated. And yeah, happy to to share any uh, links to, to those videos and other things that you'd like to, to send. We'll put them in the show notes. So Ah, uh, Dave. I know you have to go, but thanks a lot. Really enjoyed speaking with you, and and thanks a lot for the great information you shared with us. So I'm um, I'm sure a lot of people are going to benefit from it, uh, as are you, you know your your players from all your hard work. So thank you for coming on, and hope to speak with you soon, Dave. And all the
2: best. My pleasure. Really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks, Dave. Cheers.
0: All right. I really hope you enjoyed my interview with Coach David Ramos. And Dave, thanks a lot for coming on to the podcast. It was a pleasure to speak with you. And thanks a lot for your insights on how we can use video analysis to improve our games. If you enjoyed this podcast and if you enjoy the show as a whole, then I really would highly appreciate it if you would leave a review for the Tennis Falls podcast. You can do that at tennisfiles.com slash applepodcasts with an S at the end, or just on your favorite podcast app of choice that you use to listen to the show. And I also want to leave you with a quote, and this one is by Winston Churchill, pretty famous chap. And Winston said, success is not final, failure is not fatal, it is the courage to continue that counts. Fantastic quote there. And With that, I want to thank you again for listening to the show. I really appreciate all your support and kind messages. Thanks a lot for that. And I will see you on the next episode of the Tennis Files Podcast. This is Maribon Aranchad signing out.
2: Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files Podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.